Lovely to see you all this morning. Let me briefly lead us in prayers. We uh, consider this small section of Acts chapter 17. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your servant Luke, who recorded uh, these uh, events, that we, your church, might benefit and might know how to love and serve our risen Lord and Saviour Jesus. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to concentrate and that we take to heart what we uh, learned this morning so that we might grow more like Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. We don't need to know very much about the Bible or about history, really, to know that the world in which the New Testament was written is very different in many ways uh, to the world that we live in. A number of examples that are going to come up are real quick. For us, marriage usually happens between two consenting adults. In the New Testament world, it was often the case that your parents had arranged your marriage and uh, quite often from when you were a child. I couldn't resist that one, eh? For us, children turn into these things we call adolescents and then gradually, hopefully, they become adults. In the New Testament world, one day you're a child, the next day you're an adult. You go off and fight in a war. For us, when we gather to hear the scriptures read and taught, the men and the women get this, they sit together, or even talk to one another. In the first century, the people who gathered to hear the scriptures read and taught were uh, almost uh, always Jews, and for them, the men and women sat separately, as is actually still the case today in a lot of Orthodox uh, Jewish synagogues. Uh, I do not have any slaves at my house. nor am I the property of another person. But in the New Testament world, there were heaps of slaves. Uh, and as a side note, in case you're wondering, slavery in the first century was, is very different to the kind of abuse and mistreatment of people that we typically associate with uh, uh, slavery in the 19th century. Uh, some of the best bankers, lawyers, architects were actually slaves. It just meant they were bonded uh, to a house or a family. Uh, most of us, to a greater or lesser extent, I suppose, have a mouth full of operational teeth. Whether real, fake, or somewhere in between. In the New Testament world, well, I shudder to think what dental hygiene must have been like. Matter of fact, even before the New Testament world in the Old Testament, the book uh, Song of Songs, a woman is praised for her immense beauty because uh, her teeth are like a flock of sheep, each with its pear, which is a fancy way of saying... She was a great-looking woman because she had all her teeth. It was amazing. <laughs> Diplomacy between nations and uh, regions wasn't nearly as developed as uh, what it is for us, at least in Australia, and uh, that meant that men, and uh, very young men included, uh, would frequently die in battle. Medical treatment was nowhere near advanced as it is for us in Australia, so women and babies uh, would far more often die in childbirth. Though everybody dies now as then, I suspect that people in the New Testament world probably saw a lot more death uh, than we do, and on average we have a longer life expectancy. Now, I bring all this up, I, I could go on, there's all sorts of differences, right? But I bring this up because it's not uncommon for Christians uh, to be confused about how directly the New Testament is to be to, uh, applied to us in our culture and context. 
sometimes when it comes to a particular teaching that might be considered controversial, uh, you hear some Christians or some Christian teachers saying something like this, when you take into consideration the culture and the context of that time, that particular teaching applies very differently uh, to them then than to what it does uh, for us now. And whilst that is absolutely right, uh, it's right that a careful reading of the New Testament means we should take into consideration the cultural background. Sometimes we can be confused about whether giving lots of consideration to the New Testament world is done so that we might better understand the Bible or whether it's being done so as to give us an excuse to avoid certain teachings. It's a constant problem that Christians constantly come up against. Now, one of the big themes in Acts uh, chapter 15 to 17, which is our sermon series at the moment, uh, is mission. That is bringing the good news of Jesus. We call it the unstoppable gospel, right? Bringing the good news of Jesus to people in the hope that they repent and follow him as their Lord and their Saviour. And it so happens that the people, our missionaries, Paul and Silas and, and, and others, come into contact with today, that is the Bereans, the Church of Berea, they are in some very significant ways very close to us culturally compared to a lot of the other groups that we've seen thus far. So what we learn about mission here, I think, should be very, very informative for our mission as Christians in our neck of the woods. Uh, hopefully over time you'll come to see why I say that. But just in case you weren't here last week... Paul and his companions had preached the good news of Jesus in Thessalonica. You know, tomatoes, tomatoes, Thessalonica, Thessalonica. Thessalonica definitely wins. Uh, true story. Uh, and a number of Jews, as well as God-fearers among the Greeks, had put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour in, in Thessalonica, and therefore they were saved. Other Jews had been jealous, as we saw last week. Uh, that they were jealous Paul got such a following, so they organised a mob to start a riot to get the attention of the Roman authorities uh, and went on a hunt for Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas uh, couldn't be found, so they made an example of the guy that was looking after them, a guy named Jason, and uh, that's basically where we left off last week. So in today's section, beginning at verse 10, and I'll put the words on the screen as well, uh, it says... Um, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, when we read, as soon as it was night, it gives you the strong impression, doesn't it, that Paul and Silas were obviously hiding somewhere while the mob tried to find them. And uh, the minute that it was okay for them to go without much chance of being noticed, well, the believers potentially saved their lives even by getting, out of their, getting them out of their quick smart. And uh, I think it's interesting to notice that it's not Paul and Silas go away, but it's the believers sent them away. All throughout the book of Acts, you see that um, the Apostle Paul doesn't back down just because there's a threat of persecution or even death, we actually see later on. In any event, the town they were sent to was Berea, and that was a wise choice of destination for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Berea seems to be a little bit more civilised probably a higher literacy rate, more wealth, and therefore the people are probably less likely to cause riots. Once you're in on a good thing, you're less likely to be used to protesting all the time. Secondly, Berea is uh, relatively close to Thessalonica. Uh, perhaps if there were people chosen for salvation at Berea, 
then the, the two churches, one in Thessalonica, one in Berea, could sort of help one another out and they could uh, help one another stand against the persecution that seems to be coming their way. And of course, as we learned last week, Paul's custom was to go first to the Jewish synagogue, which is the same thing we read here. And that's because there's a theological priority of Jewish evangelism. Uh, Jesus had gone first to the Jews, both in his earth, earthly ministry and then again after his resurrection and ascension when he poured out the Holy Spirit. Salvation is from the Jews. They are the family of Abraham who are to bring blessing to the rest of the world, so it makes sense that they know that blessing first. And as Paul would end up teaching in Romans chapter 11, it is natural for a Jew to become a follower of Jesus. So, how did things go with these Berean Jews? Well, verse 11 says, uh, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Uh, that word, that term there, noble character, I think can be a little bit misleading. I don't think it means that the Berean Jews were just better people, not like the scummy riffraff at Thessalonica down the road, we're the good people. No, I don't think it's like that. The word for noble character could also be translated noble birth. In other words, these people were born into, or perhaps some had come into a good financial situation, which meant that they were more literate because they had more leisure time for learning. We see this same idea in 1 Corinthians 1.26, which I think I put on a slide. Next slide, please. There it is. Uh, where noble birth is actually associated with being learned and influential. Paul said to the Corinthian church, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, nor influential, nor many were of noble birth. Whereas these Bereans, though, they are. So the Thessalonians we saw last week... They only met Paul on three Sabbaths, right? So three uh, Saturdays, really, they come together. And presumably that's because, probably like the majority of people, they had to work to feed themselves. Work and life is busy, and uh, they're probably less literacy, so you need someone else to read for you. So you, on the Sabbath is when you come to the synagogue. But the Bereans, on account of their wealth and stability, they had the luxury of being able to learn. So of course they receive the message with great eagerness. This is some new learning material for we who can read. And they have the time and the ability to examine the scriptures, what does it say, every day. And I think it's in this sense that these noble Bereans are actually a lot closer, culturally speaking, to us and where we are in our context. How wonderful it is that God has given us great wealth and literacy so that we have the opportunity to examine the scriptures at our leisure every day. We don't need to wait until church on Sunday so that the guy in town who knows how to read is going to read us God's word. We don't need to do that. We can hear God's word because we can read our Bibles, which we all own one. We're all free to own one. How wonderful it is that God has given us such great wealth and literacy so that we are freed up enough to even meet with other Christians. Uh, and we can meet with other Christians either in a growth group or a one-to-one Bible uh, pair or Bible trio in order to consider God's word. And therefore, I think, how dreadfully unspiritual, really, 
How dreadfully unspiritual we are when instead of being content with our great wealth, we make ourselves even more busy at at work and our pursuits of, of even greater worldly comfort or hobbies or whatever it is, such that we neglect the daily study of the scriptures. And how dreadfully ungrateful and unspiritual we are when instead of being content with our great wealth, we make ourselves even more busy at work or in the pursuit of a greater worldly comforts that we won't even commit to a midweek meeting with other Christians to study the Bible together, either in a growth group or in a, a one-to-one or a prayer triplet or something like that. I recognise that it can be the case that medically or relationally or financially there are people uh, that, that are restricted. Uh, But if that's not the case, why on earth would you not be in a growth group or a one-to-one Bible study? You have the privilege and the luxury of not having to work the kind of way that they did and you've got a Bible and you can read it and you can do it with other Christians. I recognise that for some that might sound a little bit demanding, but I'm pretty sure you'll all agree with me when I say that when the next major crisis happens, when the next tragedy comes to pass, when the next overwhelming hardship that this fallen world has in store comes your way, whenever that thing comes, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for me, whatever the next hardship or crisis is, we're not going to be thanking God that we spend extra time in the office. We're not going to be thanking God that we watch those extra hours of TV and Netflix or whatever it is, that we work to get, get another bedroom or something like that. But we will be thankful, very thankful, for the support of Christian brothers and sisters, a community of believers, especially those who we've grown alongside with, who we've read the word of God alongside with, who have prayed with us, because they are the people that are going to be the committed ones when that crisis strikes. That community uh, of believers, they're the ones that it makes sense to invest your time and energy to, especially around the word of God, because they're going to get you, they're going to get what's going on. Now, we saw from the story of um, the conversion of Lydia a few weeks ago, if you remember, that for anyone to become a Christian, God has to do the work. He's got to open the heart. He opened Lydia's heart and she responded to the message. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, comes to dwell in whoever it is that God has chosen to be saved, uh, such that they can hear, understand the gospel and, and respond accordingly. If God has not chosen someone to come and indwell them by his Holy Spirit, then no amount of explaining and arguing or church attendance will ever open their eyes to the truth. But although no one knows who God's Spirit will come upon, opening their eyes to the truth of the gospel, the one thing that's consistent and obvious all throughout the New Testament is that God's Spirit moves... When the scriptures, the word of God, are read and taught and examined. The spirit of God does not move because the music is brilliant and exciting. That's emotion. The spirit of God does not move because there's a huge crowd. As a matter of fact, Jesus, by his spirit, uh, rocks up when there's just two or three gathered. The Spirit of God does not move because there is a very solemn religious ceremony or the the administration of the sacraments happens in a very solemn way. God the Holy Spirit moves, we see it all throughout the New Testament, when the Word of God, the Scriptures, 
are carefully, eagerly examined. When they're read, when they're taught. That's why in verse 12, very important verse, it says, as a result... That is, as a result of Paul teaching the scriptures and the Bereans carefully searching the scriptures every day to see if he's able to, as a result of that, many of them believed. That's many of the Jews. And also, we see at the end of that verse, a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Prominent, probably well-to-do, and therefore those women and men had the leisure to learn and they wanted to learn about uh, uh, the scriptures, and so that's why they were there. We can never know who God has predestined to salvation. But we can know that our best bet is always, obviously, to pray, because it's God who does the work, and to get the Bible opened, to get the Scriptures open in front of someone, to examine them carefully. Uh, And I'm so delighted. I've got to say, I've heard recently of some people in our church who have actually started meeting others one-to-one simply to read the Bible. That is the kind of work that, that, that has the, the potential for making a difference in eternity. That's, that is one of the most wonderful things I've heard recently. I heard another thing recently. There's a couple of people that in one of our congregations, I won't say who they are or which one, who, who are thinking seriously about reducing uh, work from full-time to part-time because they don't need any more to live so that uh, they can actually teach Scripture and, and help kids uh, to learn the Word of God. That's a wonderful thing. The next thing we learn in this passage is something that we've been seeing over and over again in this part of Acts, and that is that God's mission happens amidst persecution. Jesus is always going to divide people, and so his word, the scriptures, therefore, will always divide people too. Verse 17, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Hence my alliterative title of blessing and berating in Berea. I just, I feel I deserve a lot of credit for that. That was awesome. (laughs) So now these jealous Jews are going out of their way to try and start up a riot, a public disturbance, to get the Roman authorities to hopefully put an end to this crazy bunch of Christians and their funny sect. Perhaps the Bereans were too high-minded to stoop to the level of rioting so the Jews back from Thessalonica, they're the ones that are needed to come out in order to get the job, the job done. We get the impression that the persecution efforts were pretty good because the believers react really quickly. Verse 14, it'll come up as well. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So it seems that Paul's life was probably in danger, so they got him out of there straight away. Uh, again, it's the believers immediately sent him. I don't, think, I don't think his feet would have hit the floor. It was uh, not his will. It was them getting him out. But the Silas and Timothy, maybe they were facing, you know, like flogging or imprisonment or something like that. Uh, so they remained to help this fledgling church in, uh, in Berea. And again, there's something that remains totally constant between the New Testament world of them back there and our world here and now. The church will always face persecution. Even when it's a well-to-do and civilised area like us and where we live, persecution can just as easily come from somewhere else. I found it fascinating that uh, that's a group called Fire as Fairness in uh, Religious Education in Schools 
predominantly Melbourne-based, and they're not really about fairness. They're about eradication of religion in schools. And, uh, but uh, because they don't have a strong base in Sydney, well, they get their people from Melbourne to sort of do as much influential work as what they can here because there's no one here doing it. Well, they'll go out of their way to, to try and uh, make life difficult for Scripture teachers here. It's that sort of thing. We are always in our mission to anticipate and to expect persecution. And we are never to alter the gospel message in order to avoid it. That's a challenge for us, I suspect. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, a sign to say that someone is a false teacher and who will therefore make false disciples is someone who wants to avoid persecution. Paul says it very plainly in his letter to Galatia, talking about Judaizers. He says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. How can you know they're dodgy? They want to avoid persecution, that's how. If avoiding persecution is more important to us than seeing the word of God impact the lives of others, then we might as well pack up and go home. The only kind of disciples Jesus has are those who have taken up their cross already to follow him. We've given up our lives for him. We count it an honour to suffer for the sake of his name. And that only makes sense because Jesus allowed himself to be persecuted, didn't he? To the point of death. And he did that so that you and I might be released from our slavery to sin and so that the punishment we deserve will be taken by him instead of us. We can hardly be his disciples if we're not willing to suffer for the sake of others coming to know the wonderful message of salvation. Now, the type, the level and the severity of persecution may differ between our world and the New Testament world, and I'm thankful that it kind of has. But it remains a constant for all genuine gospel mission. Persecution is a constant. That doesn't mean we go looking for it, of course. In the final verse of our section, uh, verse 15, uh, we read, those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Paul has said to the guys that wished him out of there, all right, I'm giving you instructions for when you go back to Berea, to, to Berea. Get, um, get my mates and get them here as soon as possible. And so that indicates to us that we need to be wise about how we deal with a threat of persecution. We're not just to be gung-ho about it. He wants to get them out of there. He cares for his friends and he needs them for the next bit of the mission anyway. Now... That's the end of our section. I want to draw out some implications, but first, one very brief thing. Paul came to Berea. He taught them the scriptures, and they looked at the scriptures every day to see if what he said was true. Because they were looking at the scriptures, they heard the gospel, a number of them believed. And it may be the case, next slide, that you are a learner. It may be the case that you as yet don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, that you might not know what the gospel message is. Quite simply, there is one God who is Lord of heaven and earth, who made everyone and everything. He does not need to be served by us as if he needed anything. Uh, he actually put everyone where they are in their place in, in time and history in the hope they would reach out to him and find him. And therefore, it's silly to think that God is what you make him to be. That's ridiculous. Uh, God is who he presents himself to be and he's actually presented himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And the, uh, the ignorance in which we may have acted in making God who we want him to be 
that's an expression of rebellion. That's an expression of sin. But God is so loving that when he sent Jesus into the world, it was to pay the price for our sin. Jesus' death means he takes the punishment instead of you. Then God did something incredible. He gave proof to the whole world that there is a judgment day coming. And the way he gave proof of that was by raising Jesus from the dead, beginning the resurrection and the judgment. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible says a little bit just after this section, uh, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, it so happens I wasn't looking at a Bible there, but if you look at the next bit of the ch- chapter 17 when you get to the end, that's basically the message that Paul preaches, in that case, in the Areopagus in Rome. If you as yet don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, the judgment's going to come. Put your trust in him now. Repent. Decide not to live for self. Live for Jesus as Lord and Saviour. It's a simple message. You need to consider it more. Well, look at the Word of God. Just read, keep reading in Acts chapter 17. There you go, the page you're on now. If you want to learn more of the gospel, just keep reading and you'll see the gospel. Now, by way of implication, when it comes to mission, things that are constant between the New Testament world and our context here, there's two that I can see. Firstly, the Spirit moves when the Word of God is read, taught, and examined. To be truly spiritual is, well, to be someone who lives by the word of God. Uh, true spirituality in a church uh, is not a measure of how good the music is, how many people or few people there are, but how the word of God is handled. Is that the central thing? Is that the central thing in our lives? Uh, when we want to see people saved, which we do if we're followers of Jesus, how can we get to the scriptures? I reckon. It's actually not that hard to invite someone, because I know it's happened here already, to say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. If you're interested, I'd love to read the Bible. I just sit down with an open Bible between you and me. We read it together. We think about what it says. Anyone can do that. Uh, Everyone remember the story of the uh, Samaritan woman at the well where Jesus met her, and after half an hour chat, she goes and she starts evangelising the rest of the city. You can have almost no... Uh, uh, knowledge and information you can still go and you can preach the gospel you've got an open bible you can read it together second obvious implication I think is that true mission is always done amidst the threat at least of persecution and so what that means is that it makes sense as a Christian if you haven't done so already that you prepare yourself for that eventuality now you might be so blessed by God that you avoid it I mean we do live in a great place in the world but just that one person avoid it doesn't mean that it's, it's going to be a constant. It doesn't mean that the word of God and Jesus always divides. Uh, and I recommended this last week, but I'm going to say it again. Oh, it's, it seems to me, I'm not a prophet, but it seems to me that there's going to be greater persecution coming our way in the coming months, years, uh, in our neck of the woods. It's so much better if you've kind of done a bit of thinking and praying first to know what am I going to say when this happens? What am I going to pray when this happens? Spend some time. If you've got a spouse, talk to your spouse about it. What if I get attacked on on these grounds or that grounds? Hopefully not physically, although it may be the case. Almost certainly verbally, though. Think about it. Plan for persecution now. Don't wait till it hits and be sort of caught off guard. Let me lead us uh, in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for uh, the fact that your word is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates. We thank you that um, what Luke has recorded, especially in this section, uh, we can see uh, just how plainly it, it, it relates very directly to us in our context. Father, may we be people who are unashamed of the word of God. May you give us opportunity to open the scriptures with those uh, that as yet need to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And Father, may we be unashamed to name the name of Jesus and to live for him and serve him, even when uh, we rightly expect there's going to be opposition and persecution. Father, help us to prepare for that, uh, to be at peace with that, to make our peace with that, uh, so that when it does come, uh, we can uh, not, not be those that shrink back, uh, but those that uh, do good work uh, for our Saviour Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.